Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. And this morning we're going to be studying verses 1 through 18. Esther 2, verses 1 through 18. So there the author of this book writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother and her father, sorry, and when her father and mother had died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, 
who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. So, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, and when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just ask now that you would give the Holy Spirit to make the word of our King live to us. Make your word to live. It is alive. It is active. It is abiding. Make it to live and abide and act in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jenny and I finally found time to watch the musical Hamilton, and while not a discerning critic, I'll tell you what caught my eye. It was what I perceived to be really an unexpected hero. It was full of memorable characters, and uh, these memorable characters had many character flaws, pride, greed, political posturing, idolatry, adultery, and compromise. And so I expected a hero that sort of fit that bill. I expected a hero that was like a winner amongst the waywards, really. Aaron Burr, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton. But no, hidden by bigger players and their more boisterous self-presentations, there was what amounted to an angel, Hamilton's kind, long-suffering, faithful, forgiving wife, Eliza. She was relatively unnoticeable until the very end of the whole thing where her enduring nobility really does tower over everything else. To me, it was, it was totally unexpected. But there it was, this light out of so much darkness. Esther is no Eliza, just to throw you a curveball. Uh, She is an unexpected hero, but she's no Eliza, not yet anyway, which is why her rise is all the more unexpected. Her story is in the Bible after all, and aren't all the Bible's heroes beacons of utter faithfulness to God? Not so much. We study the Bible well enough, and we find that most of them are faltering sinners, frequently faltering sinners whom God in His utter faithfulness and mercy yet chose to use to do His will. He is the master of utilizing lemons for His lemonade. Now, there is no shortage of debate at all about 
Esther's actions and the morality of them, though as we go, I hope there should come some clarity as we make our way through the text. And in the process, in the end, though hidden amid all the darkness, there is a a true hero, a true hero, available to every sinner's story that will emerge. And so, let's come to our text now and first to some awfully ungodly help or counsel in verses 1 to 4. There we find a king on the rebound. Right, from the events of chapter 1 to now, it appears that three years have passed. Three years have passed by. And while the text does not tell us what the king's been up to, the old Greek historian Herodotus does tell us. Ahasuerus went after that almost, if you recall it from a week ago. He went after Greece and he lost. So he who had almost every earthly thing went hard after what he didn't have only to return empty-handed and at a great loss so that perhaps he thought himself next to nothing. And by that sober discovery, it seems we find the king laying here in a pool of self-pity. My, how we do often make poor use of usefully sober moments. God is kind to give them to us. These perceived setbacks, encounters with reality, moments in a life when the sun breaks through the fog, the sun breaks through the night, and the search of a soul can, if watchful, proceed unabated, now not in the dark, but in the light. Right? God help us not to waste them as the king does. He's lost to Greece. He's lost all kinds of wealth. He's lost all kinds of glory. And though as godly Hannah once said, the Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich, the Lord brings low and the Lord exalts, Ahasuerus does not bow. He does not give. He does not repent. He doesn't consider the gain of a humble faith, but he appears to settle in self-loathing and then begin to reminisce on something else he lost a few years prior. Vashti. Now, if those are correct who want us to see more than a casual remembering here, uh, it is a recollection of, of fondness for Vashti. But as we'll see, it really cannot be too fond for just as soon as it flows, this affection flows, it ebbs at the first thought of a fresh harem. Enter the king's so-called men. Their buddy is down in the dumps. So, they suggest a solution to the king's pity party. And when it should be, when it should be, King, three years ago we led you totally astray. Please forgive us. You need to go back to your wife. You need to make things right with your wife. That's not their counsel. No, it's organizing a thoroughgoing sex contest for the king. And so they mar his marriage twice over. They tempt the king back into the dark. 
They nullify any thought of humility and grace because, of course, they have no humility or grace. They veil the picture of the gospel. They damage the king's soul, and they proceed then to destroy the would-be lives of hundreds of young women in the kingdom. Instead of counseling a recanting of the prior drunken decree, they sort of dig their feet in here and they draw on the king's ill heart. Now, let's understand something here. Ahasuerus has a decision to make. Just because his wise men counseled sin does not mean that he had to go and commit sin. See? He's the king after all. The one not used to hearing no really could have shouted, No! I have to believe that the word no was actually in his vocabulary. But he's lost. He's lost. And used to doing whatever sin tells him to do. And so unsurprisingly, and sadly, the wise men's counsel, verse 4, pleases the king. I just want us to see here the, uh, the awful power of sin. That even the world's most powerful men cannot, would not, in themselves, ever break free from it. It's all their thought. And it was all our thought. Until God broke in and overcame the strong man in us. He proved to be the stronger one. Praise God for the might of sovereign grace that has set us free from sin. Praise God also for good counsel. Good counsel. There is wisdom, says King Solomon. You may have heard this a million times or two. In a multitude, I think we have to say, of godly counselors. Show me your friends, and I will show you your future. Whoever said that was actually wise. Who are your friends? Who are your friends? To whom do you lend your ears? Do we realize what we have in each other here? What is a true church if not an echo chamber of the wonderful counselor to you? To help you make decisions that are pleasing to our King, true to His Word, exemplary of His cross, considerate of His people, and thus best for your soul which also belongs to Him. Well, however cloaked in societal convention. Ahasuerus' wise men are fools animated by the very flames of hell. And in putting his stamp of approval on their counsel, he only further reveals the king that's actually on the throne of his heart. And as they proceed then in this course, as I said, they do proceed in all kinds of destruction. They steal away beauty and give ashes in return. And so let's begin to work our way through the author's unexpected hope, which is the rest of our text, starting in verse 5. 
And there we come first to, to words that alter the, the complexion of the entire story. It begins like this. Now there was a Jew <laughs> in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. And the reason that changes the complexion of the story is not so much because of the man that's introduced as it is the ethnicity of the man that's introduced. Mordecai, which is his Babylonian name after the god Marduk, is Jewish. Which, as one studies the Old Testament, means that the God of Israel is present in the shadows of the story now. In the man, we're meant to wisen up to the omnipresence of a covenant God who has put His glory on the line in pledging His grace to His people. And so now there was a Jew in Susa is essentially watch out world, the Almighty has an ancient word to fulfill. We'll see this more as we go, but in studying Esther, we can't just mind block the purpose and promise of redemption in Christ. That's everywhere preceded Esther. We can't disconnect it from Genesis 3.15. We cannot disconnect it from Genesis 12.1-3. through 3. We can't disconnect it from Genesis 22.14. We can't disconnect it from Genesis 49.10, and so on. Just because God is seemingly silent in Esther doesn't mean He hasn't sufficiently spoken elsewhere. And indeed, all that elsewhere is supposed to find its way here. But now, I've said it's an unexpected hope. Why? Well, for one... On the surface, one Jewish man in the citadel of the most powerful kingdom in the world sounds more foreboding than it does hopeful. We spent last week working through the unrivaled greatness of Ahasuerus, and though it's been dinged a little bit because of Greece, it still towers over a man who's part of a people that, at least to the powers that be, are hardly formidable. Israel's broken. She's lost her glory. They're dispersed over the face of the earth. Exiles laid their strength in the dust. They are nothing. And Mordecai's a nobody. And to further that point, the most natural way of reading verse 6, if you look there, is that Mordecai was part of the exile spearheaded by Nebuchadnezzar. What's the big deal about that? It just means that Mordecai's ancient. He's not old, like he's, he's beyond old. Okay? If that's right, he's well over a hundred. He's not some sprightly young reformer. No, he'd be best suited for playing bingo in a nursing home. I mean, you know how the Holy Spirit made light of Abraham? In Romans 4.19. How when it came time to produce a child, it says his body was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old, that God may be glorified for being a God who raises the dead and gives existence where there was none. Perhaps here also. But at any rate, even if Mordecai intended a Jewish deliverance, which he doesn't, 
or even if he were bold in his faith, which he is not. This was set up as an Israel against Egypt. You know, this was set up as a, a David versus Goliath. Hope for God's people would seem totally unexpected to the casual reader of a story. But wait, but wait, verse 7. It appears he's got something. In God's hand, uh, perhaps a stone to sling at that Goliath. Mordecai's raised a young woman named Hadassah. We know her as Esther. And we maybe hear the name and prepare ourselves then for the brave heroics of an uncompromising faith. Only to find, if that's the case, we've set ourselves up for at least initial disappointment. We hear the name, and then we see that she actually has two of them. And the book is not called Hadassah for a reason. It's called Esther. And why is that? Well, among other reasons, it's another reason that uh, the hope that dawns would be totally unexpected. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. Esther is either her Persian name, meaning star, or it's a Hebrew transliteration of Ishtar, who is the Babylonian goddess of love and war, which as we come to know Esther would make sense of her. Crazier still is that her Persian name, Esther, read as a Hebrew word, is akin to, I am hiding. Which is fitting for many reasons, as we'll see. Why all this focus on her double name? Here's how Timothy Cain synthesizes it, as do many others. He writes, quote, The author is trying to depict Esther as a young woman trying to live in two different worlds. By the way, she's the only character in the story who's given two names. Part of her is Hadassah, the Jewish woman who worships Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth. The other part of her is Esther, the beautiful young woman trying to make it in a world that only cares about her appearance. And the tension there is taut. And the temptation is greater and is well known among you and me today. What is it? It's to compromise. It's to compromise on our identity as one of God's people for the sake of comfort, acceptance, and promotion in the world. And as Timothy Cain discerns then, the temptation here is quite subtle. We need to see it. It is not to outright deny the faith, he says. It's simply to conceal it for her own advantage. So, as King Ahasuerus had a choice to make, conflicted Hadassah will also have a choice to make. And it does appear things are stacked against her standing boldly, for the Lord. Let's remind ourselves here that Israel had been in exile. Why? For their departure, multi-generational departure from the Lord. When some of them now are able to return to Jerusalem, and her family, Esther's family, was free to do so, her family chose against the word of God in a Jeremiah 29.14 to stay. They chose to stay in a pagan land in which her parents died. And so Esther is an orphan child 
of generational compromise in a godless kingdom. I think we can find some sympathy for her, right? We should ask ourselves, what kind of foundation, what sort of path are we laying in front of our children, next generation? What legacy are we leaving for generations that are upcoming? I mentioned the other day that while our church hasn't been tumble-free, she's managed by mercy to maintain the treasure of the gospel now for 160 years. And so here we are today continuing to preach and to showcase Christ and Him crucified. What a legacy to uphold. Hadassah, it doesn't seem, can claim such forerunners. And it shows I just want to get in there, into the story I did this week as I was reading through it. I just wanted to hop in, come alongside of her, and just disciple her on things like her true value, true womanhood, true beauty, things like God's adopting love, the hope of Messiah all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, and a brave, a bold faith, the worthiness of living for Him, though as with Moses, it costs you all the riches of Egypt, or in this case, Persia. But she's going to have to go the journey without us. And so as we see, not Hadassah, but Esther it is. When the dominoes come fast, the king's approved of a harem. Uh, the most beautiful young virgins in the kingdom are sought out, and physically speaking, God's made Mordecai's adopted daughter arose in the desert. All right? Like Bashdai, she was lovely to lay your eyes on. And that was enough to qualify for the unholy tastes of this king. And so she's taken. But we need to see that she's taken without any indication at all of resistance. And she's put into the custody of Hegai, where, again, you have to look at this linguistically in the original languages, but she is actively seeking his approval to secure the best place in the harem. It's not that she found favor in his eyes, it's that she gained it. She won it. Okay? And to do this, she complies with Mordecai's counsel, poor counsel, I would say, to conceal her identification with the people of God. She does not have to do that, but she does. Meaning, likely, that she willingly puts off every practice that would have marked her as a faithful Hebrew woman in order to be copacetic, agreeable, amenable with that Persian kingdom. Now, verse 11, it's true, I think, that Mordecai's advice carries the more parental concern of an anti-Semitism that we're going to see will soon show up regardless. He does care for Esther's well-being as evidenced by his daily walks to check in on her in the harem's 
court. But now Esther, again, she seems quite willing to become whatever it took to win this contest, to win the queenly favor of this king, Ahasuerus. And to get a sense of what it took, the author gives us verses 12 to 14, significant portion of our text. I just want you to imagine for a second a lovely teenage girl with all of her youthful hopes and dreams in front of her. At a moment's notice, she's suddenly taken from her family. She's taken from her hopes. She's taken from all her dreams. It becomes immediately evident that her value is entirely relative to her body and her ability in bed. She, who has never slept with a man, selected for her beauty and purity, she's quickly then made aware that she's not beautiful or pure enough. So she undergoes 365 days of beauty treatments. And then her turn, what an awful word in the text. Her turn comes with the king. And as she went, she was given whatever she wanted, most think to aid her attempts at seducing the king's quote-unquote pleasure. And so optionless, she'd finally go in to the king, do as he pleases, no protections, mind you. And then in the morning, having lost what is so precious, she would then walk back, not to the virgin's quarters, but to the used harem, where she'd live out her days in, quote, this is what one commentator said, luxurious but desolate seclusion. One year in prep on a one-night stand for a king's pleasure, after which she's thrown out, counted nothing more than used goods. As one put it, quote, her life was preempted by the king's pleasure. She couldn't leave the harem to marry. She couldn't leave the harem to return to her family. She wouldn't even see the king again unless he called her by name. Did he even know their names? It's one of the world's awfulest scenes. And it has not stayed ancient. How we should weep over its many echoes among us today. From sex trafficking to the slavery of sexual liberation to the Hollywood celebration of sex in a turnstile, to a, a recent restaurant radio ad I heard inviting us to come and look at beautiful women right here in Clemson. To parents encouraging their children towards sexual experimentation. To the pornographic objectification of women, to collegiate walks of shame to the harem in every man's mind. Friends, 
Let us dig deep for real repentance in this vein. For as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, which he immediately focuses on abstinence from sexual immorality and controlling our bodies for honor. Because God, he says, has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Esther has not gotten this message. She should have, but if she has, it appears for now she's put it on silent. For now. You see the text. It's Esther's turn to go into the king. No fight is put up, no objection made, but because it seems he guy knows what the king likes, She leans on his advice how best to meet his demented desires. And so it's no shock that as she's shrewdly gained favor all along the way, you see it over and over again in the text, that verse 17, she gains this king's favor also out of wedlock, while Ezra, by the way, is back in Jerusalem preaching and teaching against ultimately religious intermarriage out of wedlock, Esther beds this uncircumcised pagan best. And thus, he quote-unquote loves her more than all the other women who had gone before her. Isn't he just sweet? Isn't he swell? Well, Hadassah, this orphaned Jewish gal, has risen to royal prominence on the back of her charm, her wits, her body, her bedding, her compromises. She's become Ahasuerus' Persian beauty queen in place of Vashti. And perhaps then not at all what we came to the book expecting her to be from the jump. Make no mistake, by this rise, she will become a Jewish deliverer. Just an unexpected one with an inauspicious start. And though I'm sure that kingdom, the Persian kingdom, counted her a hero, right? There was a temporary remission of taxes after all. Food and gifts all around. Esther's feast. Still, in redemptive terms, she's not the hero in the text. So Karen Jobes, who I found to be most sympathetic with Esther, she puts it like this, quote, uh, <clears throat> How would you use this episode to teach virtue to your teenage daughter as she stands on the threshold of womanhood? What message would she get? Make yourself as attractive as possible to powerful men. Use your body to advance God's kingdom. The ends justify the means. Again, that's the most sympathetic commentator I came across here. Esther is not a model of righteousness here. She's a model of compromise with the world. She's not like Joseph, 
who fled the sexual advances of a powerful man's wife. Remember? She's not like Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego who would rather go through fire and lions before compromise. They're in exile too at that time, by the way. She doesn't even have the initial integrity of Gentile Ruth. As one spotted, she's like those the Lord chastens in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1, where the Lord says, Ah, stubborn children who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin upon sin. Esther's not the hero here. Not yet. No. The hero here is an unseen one. The hero here is God Himself. And that on two main accounts. For one, as the story advances, we find that He continues with Esther. He abides by her side. She may be out from under Mordecai's oversight, out from under Mordecai's care, but she is not out from under God's. She herself may have put God temporarily in her rearview mirror. But God is nonetheless right there all around her. And just think, she's just hidden her faith. She's become indistinguishable from the world. She's given herself to that culture's values. She sought out Ahasuerus' god-awful pleasure. And then she has slept with, then married, that pagan king, as a willing participant in a sex runoff, may the best enchantress win. Even Vashti took a stand. Esther's just butter in the devil's steamy playground. She's a hot mess. And yet, and yet, God does not discard. Unlike Ahasuerus, who only welcomed beauty queens, the Lord really loves even the ugliest of sinners like her. Beloved, maybe, maybe you think you're too bad, too used, too ugly, too shameful, too sinful, too far gone, beyond restoration. I just want to tell you, God, while just, promotes Himself as the God of all grace for a reason. No one deserves His company. And still though, we've spurned Him countless times. He loves us, and He sticks with us, and He restores us, and He uses us for His glory. He's the unseen hero here in preserving His people. And in working all things together for our good. Listen, you read through these verses, you would be hard-pressed to find anything good. It's not there. It's not exclusively the ungodly decisions of yet responsible people. And mysteriously, mysteriously, without being the author or approver of any of it, God's yet ordained all of it 
From the king's anger and self-pity, to his buddy's sick counsel, to the uprooting of families and futures, to Mordecai's compromise and all of Esther's sins, for the final good of his people. A deliverance is coming. As one put it, while our sins remain precisely that, they are not, praise God, they are not unredeemable. God can write straight, even with crooked lines. And so there is hope for us, just as there was for Esther. And what we see in Esther is really only confirmed in Jesus. So Peter, in Acts chapter 2, he says this. He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, the greatest evil ever committed responsibly by lawless humanity was sovereignly ordained by God to the greatest end, specifically His glory in the eternal salvation of His people. And in Esther, we will eventually get a taste of this. God's ability to work all things, even our worst, into what He's determined to be best. Though He would not always be so unseen, He is the unseen hero here in Esther. But, now, let's talk Jesus. In whom God was hidden, but seen. And yet what was seen, how different? How different? Not just from Ahasuerus, but from Esther. Now there are some notable similarities. Like Esther, Jesus grew up far from home. Jesus grew up with an adoptive father. Under the rule of a political power. And unjust overlords. He was, they thought, a nobody. No matter what preceded him in in Scripture, he was the unexpected Jewish deliverer. And now Satan knew this. Satan knew this. And so Jesus was tempted more than anybody to compromise. And this is where Jesus parts ways with Esther. You see, as Isaiah said, Christ grew up before God not as a rose, but as a root in the desert. He had, as Jenny read in our call to worship, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him. Esther had a lovely figure, pleasing to look at. Not Jesus. Nothing special about His looks. He had no beauty that we should desire Him. Except the truest beauty of a perfect obedience to God even to death on a cross. Beloved, there is always a worthwhile path of uncompromising obedience to God for those who are willing to suffer for it. And thank God, Jesus was. He took our place 
not as one gorgeous sinner for another, and not on a worldly throne, but the true King in His beauty on that cross, the righteous one for the unrighteous. And there He died in exile, suffering our exile to win forgiveness and put an end to our exile and reconcile us to God again. Back to Hamilton. Such great entertainment. I mean, just crazy. Just found myself going, image bearers. Unbelievable. At, at every close of a scene, uh, the, the live crowd would roar with laughter and cheers and applause. And, except one scene. Except the close of one scene. It was where, after having been treated so consistently, terribly, by her husband, Eliza yet took her husband's hand again in forgiveness. And he's just standing there holding her hand and he just starts weeping. And the scene closes. And there was applause, but no cheers. Go back and listen to it. No cheers. No laughter. Just soulful serenity before surprising sanctity. They just seen unexpected beauty. A captivating shadow of what deep down we all know we need, but doubt exists. Dear friends, it does exist. Not just from one sinner to another, but from God through Jesus to you and me. He's the God in Christ who specializes in giving beauty for ashes. Better than the remission of taxes. Believe it or not, there is the remission of sins. More than Persia's gifts, the gifts of heaven. A new heart, a new life, a new beauty, a new family, a new hope, a new home, a new home that's built upon the rise, resurrection, of this unexpected Jewish deliverer to the everlasting throne. If you have not yet turned from your sins this morning and trust in this Jesus, Oh, what a friend for sinners. More than all in Him I find. He has granted me forgiveness. I am His and He is mine. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a friend. Saving Helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. And well, beloved, let us go out then and live nobly, uncompromisingly, and beautifully for Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. As we asked 
at the beginning, so here at the close. Let the Holy Spirit continue to bless the truth and grace and beauty of Christ now seen. Let His glory rejoice our hearts and satisfy our souls as we come to sing again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.